morning, only four verses, but don't start planning lunch yet, okay? <laughs> four verses, Luke 13, we'll pick it up in um, verse 18 here this morning. Uh, we're starting a new series, we finished up Hebrews last week, praise the Lord. Um, it happened, we finished, uh, so now we have more stuff to do. Um, for those who pay attention to this type of thing, um, where we'll be going as a church uh, over the next few um, months and the next little bit of our life uh, is we are going to walk uh, through the Gospels, uh, or really just kind of saturate ourselves in the Gospels for the next about two months, and then in the new year we'll hit Acts, okay? And Acts is the church's life um, because of the Gospels, because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so kind of intentionally we want to put ourselves in that groove in order to hit the new year um, and try to further be who God has called us to be in the world. Um, and so I want to invite you over the next two months, we're starting a new series called The Messy Kingdom, to saturate yourself in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, over the past few years, I've become convinced um, that some of us, including myself, uh, so often look over the Gospels. And we see the Gospels as kind of um, just a necessary event before we get to the Gospel. Right before we get to Jesus' death, and we have a hard time figuring out what to do with all of this stuff in the Gospels itself about his life and about what he said and about the things he asked his followers to do. We just want to get to his death, we want to get to his blood for us, and then we want to let Paul um, kind of lead us um, into the future. But I want us to go back to the Gospels because I think um, as I've looked at Jesus and looked at his life for the past few years, what I've found um, is that he has so much to say to us, and he has so much to teach us. And I've become convicted over and over and over again about whether Christians are actually followers of Jesus or if we're followers of some kind of religion that just kind of makes sense to everybody. Or, or I mean, are we distinctively Christ-centered? Are we distinctively following after Jesus? And so lots to see in the Gospels, um, and we'll do that over the next few um, weeks together. And then we'll hit Acts, and again, um, we'll just go uh, into the new year. Um, in an effort to be who God has called us to be, um, to play the part in the story that God has called us to play. Um, now, life is messy. We can say that. Life is messy. Um, life gets you dirty. Life makes you sweat. Life is not, we could say, TV or the movies, right? We see TV, we see the movies and kind of the media. Um, and, and what happens is we get sold a very romantic view of life. Um, and that's not how, so I mean, any sitcom um, that you could watch, right? In 22 minutes, there's going to be a big problem and it's going to get solved. And after 22 minutes, it's over and you're done and you feel real good about it, right? And you're like, wow, life really works well. And then you are in real life and it never works like that. And relationships stay, stay strained, um, sometimes forever. Um, sometimes um, relationships just get messed up, right? Um, but we have this kind of romantic um, idealized picture that's often sold to us. Now, I think that's very dangerous for Christian people. It's really dangerous for everybody. Um, I know as a kid, uh, I've bought this over and over and over again growing up, uh, even to this day. I, it's no secret, one of my favorite movies is Rocky. Um, so, first one's the best. I'm not going to argue with you on that. Um, that's not my point this morning, but it's true. Uh, the first one's the best. Last one actually wasn't that bad, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, Rocky, I love, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for any type of like movie like that. The underdog movie, right? Where someone rises to the challenge and trains really hard and then um, does what they set out to do and accomplishes a great victory. Um, so in the, in the movie Rocky, 
there is this scene. Hopefully you've seen it. If not, why are you here this morning? You need to see Rocky, okay? Um, there's this scene where he decides to go fight Apollo Creed, right? Again, I can't explain this to you. You need to watch it. But he, he's got to go fight the world champ, and so he starts training. And there's this like five or six minute kind of montage where he is training, and you've got the exciting music behind him, the Eye of the Tiger, right? And he's doing sit-ups, and he's hanging from the ceiling and doing all these things and working out. And then in the course of like seven minutes, he goes from being, you know, um, Rocky Balboa to being Rocky Balboa, right? And he's ripped and jacked, and he's ready to go take on Apollo. And every time I watched it as a skinny little um, white kid, I thought, let's do it. That doesn't look that hard. (laughs) And so I'm like, you know what? Tomorrow, I'm going to start working out. And tomorrow, I'm going to get in crazy shape. And tomorrow, I'm just going to be the champion of the world, right? Um, And still, if I watch the movie, I get that urge. I'm like, oh, let's go do it. But then here's what happens. The next day, you put on your running shoes, and you go outside to run, and your knees start hurting after a couple seconds. And the, the thoughts start going in my mind, and I'm like, oh, man, I would rather eat ice cream <laughs> and watch Rocky do the hard work because um, it's just messy like you get this romanticized picture of like yes training and you just kind of do a couple simple things and all of a sudden you're you're very um, in shape and you're just ripped and you can just take on whoever and then you start to do it and it involves pain and sweat and time it's just it doesn't work out quite as neat and as nice as, as you want to do now the danger here is that, that not only would we just see that in life I mean you see this with, with high schoolers right who watch the real world uh, or things like that, kind of like glorified 25-year-olds who just drink um, and sleep around and they have no jobs or responsibilities, things like that. Um, and, and we're sold that as reality, and it's not reality um, for anybody. Um, but that's the kind of the romantic picture. Now, there's a danger more than just somebody trying to figure out life. Um, but for Christians, the danger is that we would romanticize what life with Jesus is like. And I see this all the time. Um, when people talk about missions overseas, I see this. And they want to talk about, well, I mean, if I didn't have anything, if I sold everything I had and lived in Africa or in China, if I was in China and I was a missionary over there um, and I could see the, all the miracles that are happening, I could see the church booming, those type of things, um, it would just be awesome. I'd just be in this huge, awesome, beautiful Jesus life, right? But here's the funny thing. If you were ever to go to China, you would get there and it would look and feel and smell a lot like it does now. You're like, oh, that's weird. There's a ground. And that's weird. I'm, I'm still tired, and I still have these other motivations in my heart. And I still have these conflicts with the people around me. And I can still doubt whether God's working there or moving there, things like that. <clears throat> or some of us, um, maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally, were sold kind of a bill when we became Christians that life was going to be really easy. That it would all kind of square up a lot like a sitcom in 22 minutes, right? There would be no real problems. There would be no lasting struggles. There would be no confusion or doubt. And that's just simply not the case for anybody. I know from my perspective, maybe not yours, from my my perspective growing up, uh, I saw speakers, um, people who preached, uh, and thought, man, they have it all together. I mean, I'm trying to remember back, but I swear I didn't think their feet touched the ground. I mean, I just thought, wow, anybody has it together, it's that kind of person. Now someone who is a speaker and who knows a lot of them, that's not the case. At all. In fact, I know some speakers um, who maybe have it less together than most of the people around them, the most people they speak to. There's no romantic idea of, the, of, of life following after Jesus, both in reality 
or in the scriptures. Here's what we're going to do over the next um, two months. Again, we're going to dive into the Gospels, and I want to invite you to saturate yourselves in the Gospels as well as we look at Jesus' definition of life. And we look at his definition of God, and as we look at his definition of good news, of what he did and what he expects out of us. And I think we'll find that he has so much more to say to us and to our world and to our leaders and to our neighborhoods and to our houses than we maybe could imagine. Jesus, he, he's very much aware that even the kingdom itself is kind of this messy thing. And so what he would do to explain this, how he would um, typically like to tell us about the kingdom, which we'll get into this morning, is he would tell these stories, these real natural stories. There weren't anything special, right? He wasn't trying to romanticize things and, and make it seem like this was going to be some grand, divine, otherworldly thing. He would just point out things that everybody could see and feel and touch and had been a part of and say, it's like that. And it's like that and it's like that. And he came and he did something dramatic and the world has never and will never be the same. And so that's what we want to look at this morning as we get started, okay? Luke 13, we're going to be in verse 18. Um, not a lot to read, but a lot to do, okay? He says this, Luke 13, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it to? It's like a grain of mustard, a seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So he points out two very basic things that everybody would have been a part of, everybody would have seen happen. And he says, the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is like that. Now we have work to do here, okay? Um, because we should have no pretensions that we understand what Jesus means when Jesus uses words. What I mean by that is um, what we're looking at here is an ancient document said by people who are not us, who don't think like us, who don't have the same stories as we do, who don't think of God the same way we think of God, who don't see politics and global happenings the same way we see politics and global happenings. Think to the book Animal Farm. I don't know if you're familiar with the book Animal Farm, written 70 years ago. Um, it's an allegory about these animals who are really representing these different characters in the Russian Revolution from the 40s. If you were to pick that up off the street with no preface or no introduction or explanation, you probably would not arrive at the conclusion that these animals are characters in the Russian Revolution. We call that low context. We don't share a lot of the same information. Um, but um, there's high context, right? And so that would be like if I told you, um, I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream. I don't need to explain to most of us what I'm referencing, right? Martin Luther King Jr., the great I Have a Dream speech. We call that high context. We share a lot of information. Low context is we need to explain it and work at it. Um, and that's 70 years ago, I would say, we're into low context with Animal Farm specifically. Um, now, if you go back, let's say, 500 years, okay, 1,000 years, 15, okay, 2,000 years, now we're in what we might call no context, right? This is a different world with different people, with different expectations than us. So we've got to do some work because I honestly don't know if we understand what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of God. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll show this and point out a couple times this morning. I think we have gotten it completely backwards. I think the kingdom of God is a very specific belief and expectation 
and we have switched it 100% in the opposite direction. So we'll see that. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says kingdom of God? Um, well, there are certain phrases and words um, that you need to have a story to understand. For instance, if I told you Sam and Frodo have reached Mount Doom. Well, I'm not just talking about a guy named Sam and a guy named Frodo who reached a mountain, right? I'm talking about the end, the climax of this huge story that you've been invested in for hour after hour after hour after hour, right? Now, I don't want to play because some Christians find Gandalf in everything, okay? Um, but if I said that, Frodo, Sam, they've reached Mount Doom, you need a story to understand the significance of that. Or take the, the phrase, if I were to tell you, um, we're having chicken for dinner tonight. Pretty simple phrase, right? What does it mean? Well, we're having chicken for dinner tonight. But what if you knew that we were living in the third world and eating an animal was a luxury, it was something you almost never did? Then now if you hear someone say, we're eating chicken for dinner tonight, it takes on a whole new meaning, right? There's a different world that it's situated in. Or what if I was to tell you um, we've eaten chicken every night for the past three years? Then when I say that, same words, same phrase, it's really a complaint, right? Cook something else, please. <laughs> I had enough chicken. Well, in the same way, I think we need to do some work to understand what it is that Jesus meant and his followers would have heard when he says the kingdom of God. Now, the Jewish people believed a very specific story about the world and about themselves. They believed that God had created all things. It was good. But then because humankind rebelled against him, sin and death entered into the world. There was this split. There was this fracture and evil, death, sin, Satan started to reign in creation. But God, in Genesis 12, comes to a man named Abraham and says, I want you. And I want you and your family. And through them, I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be a blessing to everybody. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, okay? This comes right after chapters 3 through 11, where sin and death, destruction are spiraling out of control as a result of the fall. God stops it all and says, Israel, let's fix this. And the Jewish people throughout their history, they thought that God was going to use them to bring salvation to the entire world, to fix everything that had gone wrong. The problem, though, if you read history is that Israel was part of what had gone wrong. Um, so if you read the history of Israel, um, they're failing over and over and over and over again. And because of that, God is sending judgment on them. And so there are these different foreign nations that constantly come and enslave them, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Now, if you fast forward into the first century when Jesus is living and breathing and talking to the people around him, the Jewish people were waiting on something that they called the kingdom of God. And what they meant by that, we might be able to see in some of the um, texts from our Old Testament. I'll take you back to what we read for our scripture reading, which is Isaiah 52. Um, in Isaiah 52, um, if you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. Isaiah 52, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Um, you have this um, oracle of salvation, um, the prophet speaking to the Jewish people, saying a day, a time is coming when something will change. And we'll pick it up in verse 7 here, Isaiah 52, verse 7. He says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. The astute reader might know that gospel in the New Testament 
It's just a translation of the phrase good news. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to God's people, your God reigns. Your God is king. Your God has taken control of creation once again. If we were to keep reading verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste place of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. We might say that the kingdom of God, if we want to define it, would be the reign of Israel's God over the earth. They were waiting for a day when the Lord would return to creation and establish a definitive kingdom. He would begin to reign once again. He would take control of his creation because there were a whole lot of things in it that didn't belong. (coughs) They were waiting for someone to come and say, your God reigns. Your God reigns. You might ask, well, has not God always reigned? Is he not sovereign? Has he not always been in charge? In a sense, the Jewish people would have understood that, and they would have said, yes, he he is, in a sense, always in charge. But if we look around us, it's obvious that there are things that he has not put his reign over. So they're waiting for him to come and establish his kingdom. In a sense, they're waiting for a worldwide theocracy. God governing the world. Jewish people believe that God reigned in heaven. That in heaven, his will was done perfectly and what they were waiting was for that to happen on earth as well now a couple things would happen if the kingdom came okay um one it would be the moment when god defeated all the powers of evil when god defeated the powers of evil so you've been in sunday school for a while you probably heard the idea that a lot of jewish people expected god to defeat the romans in jesus time because they were the controlling empire This comes all the way back from the Exodus, where God defeats the Egyptians. They were waiting for God to come again and defeat the powers of evil. Now, Jesus, though, will redefine what really was the power of evil. He'll say it was really sin and death. It was really our banishment from the garden in Genesis 3. We might look at another text um, in Zephaniah chapter 3, where the Lord Yahweh says, Therefore, wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. He says, I'm going to gather up everything and defeat all that should not be my good creation. This is the idea of God's jealousy. This is mine. I created it and I will take control again. I will not allow sin and death to reign in it forever. So the kingdom, what they were waiting for, God becoming king of the earth, was when God would come back and defeat all that was evil in a victory, much like the victory he accomplished in Exodus over the Egyptians. And when that happened, a couple other things um, would follow suit. One, he would judge all that's wrong and out of place with creation. Judgment, as we pointed out over and over again here, is not intrinsically a bad thing we think of it as a bad thing don't judge me who are you to judge me but if you ever want to live in a world 
where there is no sin and there is no death and there is no sickness and there is no oppression and there is no poverty and there is no war, then you want justice. You want someone to come and say, this is wrong and will not be allowed anymore. Now, when justice becomes negative is when you're part of what's not allowed, right? That's when you don't want the judgment. You don't want the justice. But anybody who wants creation to return to the very goodness that you found in just one wants there to be judgment. So there's judgment and then there's vindication. God will vindicate all that which is good, which should be there, particularly those who are his people. We might look at another text from the Old Testament to see this. Malachi, the prophets are all about this future time that's coming. He says, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them neither root or branch. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise up with healing in its wings. You will go out leaping like calves from the stall, which is just a funny image to me, right? But this is a picture of like joy. You're finally set free until the calves come out of the stall and they're jumping up and leaping. But here's the idea, right? I'm going to judge that which should not be there and that which should will be vindicated, will be lifted up. The kingdom of God. This is what a first century Jew would have heard when they heard this language. They would have thought, finally, finally God is coming to creation in a way that he has not been previously. And he is taking control. Now, if you read the Gospels, the primary message of Jesus, really the only thing it seems like he was concerned about was telling people that the kingdom of God was coming, was happening, was here. You see this here in Mark. I have it on your worship guide for you. Mark 1, 14 through 15. This is the first thing we hear out of Jesus' mouth in all four Gospels. This is a summary of his ministry. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God, the good news. Proclaiming the good news of God. What is it according to Jesus? The time is fulfilled. The story is reaching its climax. Frodo and Sam are reaching Mount Doom. What we've talked about and heard about and read about and worshiped with, it's coming true. The defeat of evil itself, judgment, vindication. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' primary message was this. The kingdom is arriving. The kingdom of God is arriving. If you read the Gospels, he's actually more interested in this than he is even in healing people and casting out demons. He'll constantly withdraw from that and give us the reason that he needs to go proclaim the good news. He needs to proclaim the good news that God is becoming king. You might actually summarize all four Gospels with that headline. How God became king. What are the Gospels trying to tell us? This is the story of how God came, became king, how he came down to creation and set up a kingdom. He took control and started reigning once more in a way that he hadn't been previously. And so if you read through the Gospels, Jesus would say in Luke 11, um, when you see me cast out demons, when you see me heal people, you should know that the kingdom of God is here. 
Jesus went around throughout Galilee, throughout Palestine, acting like he was the king and telling people, good news, it's happening. What you've been waiting for is happening right here, right now. In my life, God is taking control. Now, this confused these people as much as it confused is you and I. Because what they expected, again, is a king who would come and fight this huge military battle and set up a very public worldwide dominion. And then you and I to this day have to question, was there actually a kingdom set up in the first century? Does it not still seem like there is a lot out of control and a lot of darkness in the world? And so Jesus would tell these stories about the kingdom. And that's where we find here in Luke 13. Um, in the context of Luke it comes right after, you see in verse 10 um, through verse 17, he heals a woman um, that's been disabled. She's had a spirit. Um, she's been disabled. He, heal, he heals her on the Sabbath. People are upset about this. And so there's this controversy. Um, he goes back and forth with them in verse 17. As he was saying all these things, his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And then he starts to tell a story. If you look in Matthew chapter 13, these two stories are presented as well, but in a different context. In just the context of a large passage of teaching. Jesus probably told these stories a lot. He was an itinerant preacher. He traveled and spoke and preached and taught. And he had these two stories that he loved to tell about what it looked like when God became king of the world. First story. What's it like? What would I compare it to? Well, it's like a seed, a mustard seed. Matthew tells us it's a very small seed. It's a, it's a seed, it's a mustard seed that a guy would put into the ground. Everyone would have seen this in Palestine for a century. The guy puts it into the ground, you water it, you plant it, and then it, it grows. And it grows and it grows. And then it becomes a tree, a big tree. A tree so big that birds would come and make nests in it, would find shelter take shade, take refuge in it. Now here's what you should know. Um, a, 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 the image right here of a tree where birds come and nest in the tree is actually an image that was common in the Jewish scriptures in our Old Testament. You see it over and over and over again. What it is, it's a symbol for a very powerful kingdom. It's a symbol for a very, very powerful kingdom. We'll see here in both of these stories, um, what he's doing is he's comparing the kingdom to certain end results. Um, if you work in the um, original languages and go back to the Aramaic that Jesus spoke, um, this word like should maybe better be translated as not the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree, as if the kingdom is the seed. But the kingdom of God is the same way that a seed grows into the tree. It's referring to the whole story. That's the comparison, which would make us think the emphasis is on the tree right now. What's happening? Well, there's a tree that's blooming. And this tree with birds nesting in it is a symbol for this very powerful kingdom throughout the scriptures. I put three here for you. We'll look at Ezekiel 31.6. This is talking, Ezekiel the prophet is talking about the kingdom of Syria, at one time the largest empire around. And he says, how glorious, how beautiful was Assyria. Well, all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its branches. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. 
You'll find the same imagery in Daniel 4, verse 12, this time referring to the kingdom of Babylon, which was the next big great empire after the Assyrian one. He says the kingdom of God is like the seed that grows into a tree, which is kind of surprising. You might not look at a seed before you'd ever seen one planted and grow and think, yeah, a big tree is going to grow out of that. It was unusual. But nevertheless, it came, and it became powerful, and it became this huge kingdom. And then he moves on, and he says, what else? What else could I compare the kingdom of God to? Well, it's like leaven that a woman took and put in some dough and some flour, and then it all became leaven. Now, these three measures of flour would have been um, way too much bread for a woman to be making. It would have fed probably about 100 people. And he says, just a small little piece will influence the whole. This was a very common symbol for something that influenced, that spread, that expanded until it was completed, until it had reached fruition. You find it again in the scriptures in Mark 8. Jesus uses the same symbol, but in a negative sense. They had forgotten to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. Jesus takes this lack of food and takes it, makes it a teachable moment. He says, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's even more striking here in the parable that he takes what is normally a negative symbol and applies it to the kingdom of God. This would have shocked the hearers. They said, Usually we're used to hearing about how that's negative and it influences us around us. But now the kingdom of God is spreading and growing and reaching its end, its fruition. The point of these stories. Jesus is talking to people who are confused about what's happening in and through his life. The point of these stories is, it's here. The kingdom of God is here. The same way that God reigns in heaven, he is now beginning to reign on the earth. If we go back to the Lord's Prayer, he says what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God has been misread by us. You see, you and I sometimes read about the kingdom and Jesus announcing the kingdom, and we think that it's simply a way that you and I still live even though we die, that there's life after death. What we need to realize, though, is that the Jewish people already believed that. And Jesus didn't change their belief in that. They were already very aware that God was bigger than death and could save them after death. And sometimes we think that Jesus came to teach us morality, and again, what we need to realize is that the Jewish people had already been taught morality. They were already told to love God and to love the people around them. The real big difference in what Jesus did is he said, a new time is starting with me. Something is happening in the world that has never happened before. And what is it? God is taking control. So in that sense, really what's happening is not you and I are going to heaven, but heaven is coming to us. God's will will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. You see, I think sometimes we flipped the story completely. And we think the point of Jesus, of his coming, of his ministry, of his death, was to suck us up out of the earth into heaven. If you read the Gospels, you don't read such things. You instead hear about a Jesus who went around saying, guess what's happening? It's coming to us. The world is changing. A kingdom is starting. A new time is here where God will break into the brokenness that's around us. It's not escapist. It's not we're going to go to heaven. It's heaven 
It's coming here, now, and we might as well learn how to deal with it. God is becoming king. And again, the story is it's a seed. It's a small little piece of yeast. There, even though it looks unusual, even though you might not imagine that is how God became king, Jesus says, it's, it is. The blessings are available. Just like the birds nest in the trees, so now the salvation that God is bringing will be available to the entire world. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice Jesus is referred to often over and over as Lord. That's a kingly title. Jesus is referred to as the Christ. That's a kingly title. Now we have imagined and made it into a last name, so it's Jesus E. Christ, right? That's not originally what it was. It was the Christ, the anointed one, the Jewish king who would reign over the entire world. What we've done in the Western world, for reasons that you might trace after the Enlightenment, is we've tried to rein Jesus down into kind of this private religious figure. But if you read the Gospels, he sounds more like a politician than he does a religious leader. It sounds like he's on a campaign trail. It sounds like he's gathering support. It actually looks a lot like what would happen when a candidate like Barack Obama travels the country getting people's hopes, saying, hey, there's going to be a new regime in town and things are going to change. And Barack, just like, God bless him, but just like every other politician who's tried to do such things has found it to be frustrating, has found people to lose faith in him because maybe human beings cannot do such things. But if you read the Gospels and, and you see that political image, the political language, right? The good news. This is what Caesar, the emperor of Rome, would have said after he became king. I bring good news. I am now reigning. There will be peace in all the land. The kingdom, a kingdom, a king. This is political language. This is not a private, spiritual, religious leader. This is God becoming king in our world. And Jesus says, it's happening here and now. And what's interesting about it is he takes the role of that king. So in Matthew 28, Jesus dies and resurrects. He sees, if you trace this out, he sees his death as the defeat of evil. Now we, we can understand that, right? He takes on sin toe to toe, takes on death and conquers it. He beats it. He thinks that's the great defeat of evil that the whole world needed. And after the resurrection, he comes to his disciples in Matthew 28, and he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like someone who is now sitting in the Oval Office. It sounds like someone who's won the election. It sounds like someone who is in charge. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Go. 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 There's work to be done now. Um, when I was in high school and, and Christ found me, he found me actually through that little passage. I was um, a little high schooler who had made a mess of his life. I uh, was suicidal at the time, kind of at my lowest point. I'm um, reading through the Gospels for Really no reason known to me. Um, in hindsight, it was him pursuing me and wooing me. Reading through the Gospels, get to Matthew 28. Again, um, not too sure about the whole Jesus thing. Not too sure about the whole religious thing. Pretty sure about the whole done with living thing. 
I'm fairly sure on that. Um, get to Matthew 28, and I read this. And it just struck me that Jesus seems to think a whole new world was available after him. And I thought, well, maybe there's hope then. Maybe there's something to find here. Maybe there's some cards that I didn't know were available to play. He says, all authority has been given to me. Jesus seems to think something huge happened in his lifetime, through his death, that the world itself was changed forever. This is why the earliest Christians said they were living in a new age, a completely new time period. They called it the end times, and they would not have stopped calling it the end times if they lived today. They would have been a little surprised it lasted so long, just as we sometimes are. But nonetheless, they would have said, hey, we're living after God has taken up his kingdom. After evil's been defeated, as he's sorting things out, judging and vindicating. And the, the kingdom, these stories, um, there's a lot of work been done in how stories create situations. If I tell you a story uh, or invite you to think about something, it actually does something. It has an action to it. It creates a new world. And these stories, just like they went out to their first hearers, so go out to you and I. And they call us. Two things. They call us. One, to decision. To decision. Now here's where we need to be careful again not to reread the stories in a false way. The kingdom of God is first and foremost, foremost a historical reality. Or we might say it's an objective truth. It's not a subjective possibility. Which means it's not something that you and I might like to try if we're so inclined. If our religious options haven't quite satisfied us. This is where modern evangelism has got it wrong. This is where you, when you convince people, when you try to persuade people to become a Christian, because life is going to be so easy for them, there's going to be so many good things coming their way, this is when you have done it. You've created the romanticized picture. In the Gospels, Jesus convinced people not to follow him. I just can't get past that, Ever. He, can, he looks at people and says, you probably don't want to do this. That was his evangelism. He would have failed seminary. <laughs> but the kingdom is not a new experience that if, again, if you might like to try it out, it might suit you. The kingdom is something has happened. The entire world is different. And now you have a choice. We might say the kingdom um, needs a cast. It needs a cast and there's, there's parts to play. And the real question is, what part are you going to play? Not has it happened, not will it happen, not is it true for you. It's true for you. There's a king. He reigns. The real question is, what part are you going to play in that truth, that historical truth? Christianity is about something that happened 2,000 years ago. We've lost that over time. We lose that in the day-to-day -day reality of life. But when you read the Gospels, it's about something that happened in and through Jesus that we're still living in today. The question, will we align our loyalties, our lives with Jesus? We're back to Mark 1. The kingdom is at hand. Sam and Frodo have reached Mount Doom. The story has been brought to its climax. Repent and believe in the Gospel. There's been work done here as well. Repentance. Are you ready for this? Is political language. It's a political word, repentance, from the first century. 
to repent is not how Protestant Baptist preachers have used it, which is feel bad about your sins. To repent is to think differently, to turn away from your old loyalties and give them to a new person, to a new king, to a new ruler. Now, does that involve often feeling bad about your sins? Well, yes, because you come to realize that your sins were part of the evil that Jesus had to die to defeat. And your continued sins are working against his kingdom. But to repent is to recognize that Jesus has taken control of the entire world. To put your loyalties in with him. As I invite you over these next couple months to, to dive into the Gospels with me, what I'm going to do is every week or so, um, give us kind of a, a thought thing to do during the week. This week, here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at and read through Matthew 5-7, through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to read through it and see it as what it really is in the Gospels, which is a call to life in the kingdom. This is what it looks like if you follow me. This is what it looks like if you decide to play this certain part in the kingdom. This is what life looks like. The question goes out to you and I today, as it always has, will we align ourselves with him? Again, this is not, will we... Um, get benefits from him? Will we feel good because of him? We confuse so many times, we confuse the reality of the kingdom with the benefits of the kingdom. A benefit of the kingdom is that you're forgiven. But that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that Jesus has won, that he reigns. A benefit is if you follow him, you find that your sins were defeated, were died for. A benefit of the kingdom is that, yes, you might have your conscience cleared. You might not be so guilty and introspective. But that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a reality event where historically God has become king again and is bringing heaven to earth. Your will be done on earth as this in heaven. We have decision. We have mission. There's work to be done. We're trying to set ourselves up once again to get to the book of Acts. When we get to Acts, we'll see that the early church thought a victory had been won and they had work to do and they better go on and get about it. In particular, they thought they should implement his victory as if a king won, but there were still these cities who had not heard of his victory, who did not know what life looked like in the new kingdom. So their job was to go and to explain and to show To implement his victory in their own lives, to find the path of the kingdom, and then in the lives of the people around them. In Philippians three twenty, Philippians chapter three verse twenty, um, Paul is talking to the, the church in Philippi, and he tells them this: "You are citizens of heaven. You are citizens of heaven, and you await a savior." From there, the Lord, King, Jesus, Christ, the King. They're citizens of heaven. And, and once again, I think we've flipped the story completely backwards. And we've gone, aha, see, we really belong in heaven. Not here. In fact, we're just waiting. We're strangers here, right? We're strangers. We're exiles. We're aliens here. And we're waiting to go to our true home, heaven. When we get to heaven, we'll say we're finally home. This is where we've been citizens all along. But you've completely misread Philippians chapter 3. Philippi was a Roman colony. Rome was an empire. 
which means they ruled over much more than just their nation. How you do that is you colonize cities, which means we're going to take over Philippi and make it a Roman city. Well, how do you do that? You can't just tell people you're a Roman city, act like Romans. What do you do? You send Romans to go live there. You colonize it. You send Romans to go live there, and then they bring Roman culture and Roman art and Roman beauty and Roman language and Roman politics and Roman sports and Roman relationships and Roman religious beliefs. Philippi was a colony. They knew the point of being citizens in Rome was not that they were waiting to go back to Rome. That's completely opposite. The point was that they were bringing Rome to Philippi. When Jesus, or when Paul, excuse me, tells the, the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20 again, you're citizens of heaven, that's the imagery he's using here. It's not that we are waiting to go back to our real home. That's not the point. That's the exact opposite of the point. You've completely flipped the story 180 degrees. The point is, so you've got work to do. You're bringing heaven here. You're bringing heaven here. Just the kingdom is here. God is setting up a reign here like he is already doing in heaven. In the early church, we'll see it in Acts. You see it throughout the Pauline epistles. That's exactly what they were doing. They were learning how to live on earth as in heaven. And showing the world what it meant to live on earth as in heaven. If you trace the story to the very end in Revelation, you have this picture. Heaven comes down, a new Jerusalem, and it is joined to earth. They become one. God dwells with his people. God's people dwell with him. The point was never that you were to go to heaven. The point was heaven's coming to you. They're becoming one. And God is recreating all things. So here's where I think the kingdom hits us home today as much as it ever has. Because Jesus might have a whole lot more to say to you and I about our lives. About the time that we live in. About the world around us. You see, we might still fall into the same problem that the Jewish people did. Which is, if God's reigning, if he really is reigning, it seems like there's a whole lot that's not like evidence to the contrary, right? I turn on the news and I see evidence to the contrary. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus started reigning. It does not seem... To be the case. I think the New Testament respond to that by saying, well, the problem is not Jesus. The problem is his people. The problem is the mission that he gave his people has not been taken seriously, understood, or executed. The early church, they had a, a mission to go bring the reign of heaven to earth. Jesus says, I started it. It's here. There's work to do. For the next two months, let's dive into this. I mean, could we really imagine that 2,000 years ago, something happened that changed it all? That even in this day, this time, we're living in a world that has new possibilities. There's this new power. There's this kingdom. And there's a job to do. Or would it be too scary because that might change everything? Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for um, just all the blessings that you've given us. Um, I thank you for um, 
life that you have purchased for us, and the love that you have shown us. I thank you for not abandoning us, creation, and our fallenness, but instead rescuing and redeeming and coming after us like the shepherd would run after his lost sheep. Father, I pray that you would impress on us the power, the might of who you are and continue to be in the world today that we might find our lives and our missions in the grand story of Israel's God rescuing creation, becoming king, bringing heaven to earth. Father, I confess with my brothers and sisters that I have very little clue how to do that, how to do that well. I confess that I think we've seen throughout history people try it and it's gone wrong. But I confess as well that there's not much else I'd rather try to do in my life. I pray that, that you would first work in me and in us, that we would find what life looks like in your kingdom, and then we would be able to be citizens of heaven in our homes, in our neighborhood, in Sugarland, Texas, in the world. We love you. We need you. Thank you for your victory. Thank you for the good news that we all need. That you reign. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well now participate.